Hey folks, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I am flying solo. Normally Dan would be joining me for these episodes going through the book of Revelation, but he was a bit busy today, so I let him off the hook, and I will just be uh, tackling this one on my own. Um, Today we are going to be going over Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, which is the passage I preached this past Sunday. Just going over some additional materials, some thoughts, maybe things we weren't able to totally dig into. Um, So let's go ahead and just begin by reading that passage. It's relatively short. Again, that's Revelation 2, 1 through 7. This is the message to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. So the overall message of this passage is with all of these messages to the seven churches, they all close with this call to conquer, which serves as the ultimate charge for, for the whole uh, of chapters two and three is this charge for the churches to conquer. Um, that's going to take on a different flavor depending on the different church and the message to that church. In this particular case, that call to conquer entails um, what we might call a recovery of their love. So they're called to to repent and to remember from where they've fallen, to recover the love that they once had at first. And that you could summarize that that you could see that as the summary of the passage. Is this call to Ephesus to recover their love and thereby conquer as Christ calls them to. This passage has a lot of just interesting structure to it that I wasn't totally able to get into in my sermon. Um, I did post a document that tries to lay out some of the structural markers. I posted that on my website, Kirk Miller blog. If you go to the post um, where I have the sermon audio and such, there's also a document there. Um, but basically, in sh- and it, so it'd be kind of hard to explain. In some ways, it's easier to just show it to you. So that's probably the best thing to do is just go look at that. But I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of explanation that I think um, this is helpful. Like, why do we care about a structure of the passage? Because structure um, will yield to us the emphasis of the passage. Um, the way that the Bible, as in any other literature, communicates is by structuring what it says. It's just not it's not like haphazard, just random statements here and there. It's structured and organized to communicate a thought. And so when we understand the structure of the passage, it can show us what, it can help us understand the overall point of the passage. What is it, what is it trying to communicate? 
What claim is it making? And this passage has like a sandwich structure to it. As with all of these messages to the seven churches, you have the beginning opening address of, of, uh, where it says to the angel of said church and then a description of Christ. And then it closes with, um, the call to heed the words to those who have an ear, let them hear, um, as well as a promise. Um, okay, so in that case, that for this passage, that would be verse one is the address, and verse seven is that call the heed and the promise. And in the begin, and in the middle of all these messages to the seven churches, you get like the body of the letter, which are always um, introduced by this language of "I know," where Christ says, "I know what's going on in your church. I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I walk among the churches. I know your situation." And then after detailing what their situation is, there's always this call to. Uh, either some form of instruction, some form of rebuke and warming, warning, some sort of commendation, something along those lines. But in this case, you, you have the, with the church to Ephesus, this message to the church of Ephesus, chapter two, verses one through seven, you got the outer, if you think of it, you want to talk about a sandwich, you can think about it as a sandwich. Otherwise, sometimes people talk about like, talk about it like an Oreo. If you like Oreos, you can think of it that way. So on the outer, you get your, your two, uh, Oreo cookie, um, I guess we, what we call that, the whole thing's called a cookie. So what do you call the outer parts? I don't know. But the, those outer black tasty parts, okay? That would be verse one and verse seven. And then the, the cream filling or whatever that is, the frosting is verses two through six. But even within two through six, you get something of another sandwich. Um, so he begins by, by commending them in verses two and three. And then commending them again in verse six, but in the middle, four and five is where he gets the, where they get the rebuke and the warning. Um, there's a lot more I could go into in terms of the structure. Um, because even within those sections, I would say there can be even further kind of sandwiching, uh, textures to them. And so it's, it's a very intricate structure. It's very interesting and illuminating. Um, but anyways, I would just refer you to that document. So. Um, always helpful to pay attention to structure as we study a passage. But the structure in this case, at the very heart then of the passage, the very center of the sandwich, um, is the call for them to recover their love. So that shows us that that is, that is vital to what is going on here. In many ways, the commendation is kind of like a setup to then say, okay, you're, you have this, but I have this against you. So there's that, that kind of play on words like you have this, but I have this against you. All right. So as we get into the material, then one of the questions that um, often arises, and I, I was expecting that if Dan had been here, he would probably want to ask this question, is in each of these messages to the churches, Jesus introduces himself in a particular way. He doesn't, he's not introduced the same way every time. Like here, he's said to be the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. But for example, in the next message to the church in Smyrna, he says the words, it's the words of the first and the last, he who died or who died and came to life. So he described, he's described in different ways, as well as the fact that the promises at the end are different. Um, so here in verse seven, it's to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, um, to the church of Smyrna, just to use one example, um, the one who conquers will not be hurt by second death. So the question is, um, I suppose one option on the one hand is that these are just 
these different descriptions are just sort of, uh, it's just variety. It doesn't necessarily mean anything significant, but more likely, I'm convinced, um, just the way these descriptions fit with the body of the messages is that they are fine-tuned. They are the description of Christ and the promise given to each particular church is adapted and selected specifically for the situation and the instruction given to the church. So one of the questions is, for for our passage, uh, this message to the church in Ephesus, is why does Christ describe, why is Christ described this way for them? Um, particularly the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. And as I explained in the sermon, I think that conveys Christ's um, investment in the church, his authority of, over the church, his knowledge of the situation of the church, etc. Um, of course, that's the case for all of the churches, though. So why specifically, um, why is that specifically highlighted here? And I think, though, there's a, there's a link between, in verse 1, the fact that Christ is described as the one who um, walks among the seven lampstands, and then, of course, in verse 5, where he threatens to remove their lampstand. And so that link between the very, uh, we might say the center of the passage, what has to do with this threat that they need to recover their love, and if they don't, their actual lampstand, their status as a church will be dissolved, it'll be revoked, it, they won't be a true church. Um introducing Christ that way as the one who actually has authority over them to do that thing then kind of sets us up. Um, it's not just an empty threat. It's not just uh, something that kind of gets tossed in the middle of the body, but it was already introduced. The message was very much introduced by a Christ who actually has authority over said church. And this also fits with the promise then too, potentially, um, where there's this promise about eating of the tree of life, which of course conveys the tree of life representing eternal life. And so to eat of the tree of life, just like in the Garden of Eden, that is, it's a, it, it symbolizes the sustenance of, of having life. Um, you're partaking of that eternal life. And if the background, some of the background suggestions that I threw out are true, where, um, either this is meant to be reminiscent of the tabernacle, like the lampstands, as John says, as Jesus says in this message, talking about the lampstands. If the lampstands in the tabernacle were reflective of, of trees in the Garden of Eden, um, then it also, the language of lampstand also fits the promise then as well of, of a contrast between having your lampstand removed versus actually obtaining to the true tree, the true, the true tree of, of life. Um, or as well, the, the background in Ephesus with the temple to Artemis, where there's that asylum tree in the center of, of, of the temple. So rather than having your lampstand um, removed, you will be offered the true tree. And so that's, that seems likely the reason that um, those particular features are mentioned here. Someone asked, as we get into the commendation of the letter, specifically the works of the Nicolaitans, um, they asked, like, what do we know about the Nicolaitans? Um, what, what would these works specifically be? And, uh, yeah, we don't, I don't think we have a whole lot to go off of. Um, they are mentioned again in verse 15 to the church of, in Pergamum. So, um, verse 15 says, so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And, um, there it's associated with this imagery of Balaam and Balak who, caused people, caused the Israelites to stumble into idolatry and sexual immorality. 
Um, and so the Church of Thyatira doesn't mention the Nicolaitans, but mentions Jezebel. And so there's there's potential like the the Nicolaitans may be behind multiple of these churches and their situations, but we don't know a whole lot about them. They are promoting idolatry, it would seem, of some sort, but don't have a whole lot there are some folks in the early church tied the name the nicolaitans to um in acts chapter six where we get the seven men selected seven spirit-filled men selected to take care of the distribution in the early church um sometimes they're called deacons or like the first form of deacons it doesn't actually use that term per se but um it mentions one, let's see if I can find here. It gives the list. It has in verse chapter six of Acts, verse five, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and then Nicolaus, Nicolaus, uh, a proselyte of Antioch. Some folks have uh, in the early church said that the Nicolaitans were actually um, those who fought. Like that guy defected. That uh, Nicolaus was the leader of the Nicolaitans. He was the, he was their, he was their dude. Um, now we just have that statement. I wouldn't make a whole lot of that, but that's interesting at least. Um, but yeah, we don't know a whole lot about them. Um, in, as we get then from, from the commendation to the rebuke now, I was having a conversation with someone after church who made an interesting, uh, they had a question that actually is an interesting point, I think, to reflect on, which was, uh, the individual was kind of taken aback by the fact that as we get this charge to the church in Ephesus, um, his question was like, well, where are the church leaders? Like, why is the message to these churches in Revelation not addressed specifically to the pastors? Like, aren't, isn't it sort of the pastor's role to kind of be taking care of this and making sure that things are on track? Which is, of course, there is truth to that. Um, pastors bear a unique pastors or elders bear a unique responsibility in the church um, to care for the church if they didn't then we wouldn't have that role obviously the role exists for a reason um, they have a unique responsibility that hence there's a unique role so obviously there's truth to that um, but it is interesting when you think about it is it not that these messages are directed just to the church to everybody um, and this isn't unique to revelation either so um, for example, I, I think of the book of Galatians, where Galatians is, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and they're getting, they're dealing with a heresy of uh, folks who had been saying, well, in order to be saved, or in order to be a, a true heir of the Abrahamic promises of salvation, or been, have, that have been fulfilled in Christ, you got to be circumcised. Um, it's not just faith in Christ, of course, it's circumcision. And Paul says, well, that's actually a different gospel. That's actually adding anything. Jesus plus anything is no longer gospel. It is Jesus and solely faith. Okay. But what's interesting is in, in that book to, in that letter to the Galatians, he doesn't like say, Hey, church leaders, get on this, you know, fix this. Um, now I, the person talking to me I th after church, I think they were kind of wondering, like, almost like, were there, pa were there pastors in the church? Like, yes. Um, we have based on the book of Acts. Um, we have an understanding that elders were appointed in these churches. So I don't think the assumption is like that there just weren't any elders or weren't any pastors. My assumption, what seems to be a more natural way to take it is that although elders slash pastors bear a unique role, of course, in caring 
for the church, and as, as the pastoral epistles tell us, particularly watching out for sound doctrine, correcting, um, and, and maintaining sound doctrine, rebuking error, error, etc. Um, when Paul sees heresy entering into the church in Galatia, he tells the whole church. In other, in other words, the whole church bears responsibility to care for its own health. And this isn't unique to, I just used Galatians as an example, but you could look at the, the letter to, to first, the first Corinthians of so the church in Corinth. Um, there are tons of problems in Corinth. And he addresses it to the entire church as their responsibility to take care of and to be watching out. Um, the letter to the Philippians comes to my mind as maybe one unique example where, let me turn there to get the exact wording, where it opens Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So that would be, there may be another letter that I'm not thinking of, but that would be like one example, which is not normal, where actually Paul identifies the overseers, also known as pastors or elders, along with the deacons. But notice, it's not just them. He doesn't address the letter just to them. Even even when he includes them in the address, it's to all the saints who are in Philippi. And so it's just an interesting, It's a it, the question I thought was a really, um, it highlights something really important. Um, when we look at the New Testament and its call to care about the unity of the church, the health of the church, guarding against false falsehoods, guarding against um apathy or kind of sliding into sinful tendencies, whatever the case may be, it is not just directed as if this is the leader's responsibility to take take charge of and that's it. Like certainly, again, leaders bear a unique role. Um, the letter to the Hebrews talks about the importance of, of the leaders within the church, other passages, the pastoral epistles, etc. But it's, it's, it is a really significant uh, takeaway, I think, um, as we go through these letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, to be reminded that these are addressed to all of us. Um, let the churches, let, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just the leaders, but to the churches, um, that we all bear that sort of responsibility. The other thing, too, that when we were, when I was talking with this individual after church was, I think, even just the, the level at which he was kind of shocked by the fact that even within the early church, there were already these errors happening. Like, not only was this question like, well, where are the pastors? But also, um, like, aren't, wouldn't these pastors like have been, like, they would potentially be firsthand witnesses or secondhand, you know, like second generation Christians? Like, wouldn't they know better? And of course, that, that's likely true. This is very early. This is likely written either in the 60s or in the 90s. So either way, the, these are like early Christians, right? But as we see um, in the New Testament, even early on, I think sometimes we can have this ideal vision of the early church, like they had everything together, there was no problems. But again, already in Galatia, in the church in Galatia, they were dealing with heresy. Already with the first with the with the Corinthians, with First Corinthians, we see problems galore in that church. Um, and even within the very first pages of the Book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five. I mean, the early church was not immune. So let like. We certainly are not immune either, and I think it's a good lesson and a good warning for us. All right, let's see what else to talk about here. Someone else asked as we, so we've talked about the outer rims of this passage. We've talked about the commendation. We've talked about the warning. Someone was asking about specifically the promise um, in this passage, the fact that it promises uh, those who conquer, I will grant to eat 
of the tree of life? They asked a good question. Um, so, for example, in verse 10, just as an example, um, it talks about, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This is the letter or the message to Smyrna, so a different church. You'll be thrown into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Or then later, I'll just add, even in verse 11 again, the one who conquers won't be hurt by second death. So you have this language of the crown of life, um, which is not, I, I think the best way to take that, it's not a literal crown, but it's a crown that is life. Like the, your victory, your crown, which is a symbol of victory, is the fact that you will have life. Even though you may die, you um, being faithful unto death, as he says, you will nonetheless be given life, resurrection life. Um, and again, he says to the one who conquers, you won't be hurt by the second death. You will, even as you die, you will live. Um, all right. And so the question is, like in all of these messages to the churches, there are different promises given. Um, so to the church in Pergamum, I'll give you hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Um, let's see, just grabbing some other ones here. Um, your participation in the new Jerusalem, things like that. So the question is, are all, are these all different? Like, is there each church kind of promise something different or are they all meant to be the same? And I would say, um, a little bit of both. So they're all essentially the same in that they're all, all of the messages to the churches are promising ultimate salvation for those who conquer, for those who persevere in their faith. Um, they are holding out that promise of ultimate salvation that we, we as believers will experience in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. And that's why it's, it's, it's helpful to realize that these promises then, they're, the promises are made here in chapters two and three, and then they are granted and they are fulfilled in the visions of chapter 20 to 22. And so the whole book is kind of this bridge of how do we get from the promises held out in chapters 2 and 3 to then the promises realized in chapters 20 to 22. And it's those who actually are faithful through the chaos and the cosmic battle of chapters 4 and falling. Um, those who actually persevere with patient endurance. All right, but, but all of these promises find their realization in that ultimate new creation, the full realization of God's kingdom here on earth and the restoration of all things. So they're all essentially the same. They're all holding out the promise of salvation. And yet they are different. They are different sort of uh, flavors of the same thing. So if you think about like the idea of a diamond, you can hold up a diamond and you can look at its different facets and turn it. And that's how we should think about it here. We won't, we don't want to divide these up like each church gets its own separate promise. But again, Christ, John through Christ here, or sorry, reverse that, um, Christ speaking through John here is is nonetheless um, fine-tuning his description of warnings and his description of himself and his uh, description of the promises for the particular church at hand. Um, so Smyrna needing to be faithful unto death, it's not a surprise then that, that held out to them is this promise of life, a crown of life. And that the one who conquers won't be hurt by a second death. Or it's not surprising, as we said with Ephesus, that talking about the lampstand, Christ is described as the one who has authority over the lampstand. And they're actually uh, promised the true tree, which the lampstand uh, would have been an image of, this image of a tree, the tree of life. All right. So hopefully that's helpful in answering that question. Maybe one other thing we can talk about uh, before we close up part one for today here 
is this language I think is interesting at the end of the passage about the he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as I, I just briefly mentioned this in my sermon, but that language is reflective of of Jesus' own words um, in, in the Gospels where he says uh, to those who have an ear, uh, let them hear. Let me pull up one example here. Mark 4 is probably a pretty good example here. Someone's got a loud vehicle out there. All right. Um, yeah, verse 9, Mark 4, verse 9. And he said, he who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is, of course, um, at the beginning of a section on parables or Jesus is giving parables. Oftentimes, this is something Jesus would say in the context of parables. And this is, even this language, though, of him who has ears to hear, let him hear, is potentially reflective of uh, Isaiah 6 and some of the language we find in the prophets. And that's made clear later on in Mark 4. Um, Jesus gives the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, probably a better title. And then he goes on to explain the purpose of the parables. Um, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of heaven, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And that is uh, most likely an allusion to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, when he gets his commission, um, the famous passage uh, where, where God says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. God then says in Isaiah 6, 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed, etc. So, so John, in the book of Revelation, um, the book of Revelation is sort of picking up on that same pattern of, of, of language here. And what's interesting about that is that oftentimes, as we saw, that language comes in the context. When that, when that language of, of uh, ears to hear or, or this idea of ears to hear then implying that some don't have ears to hear. Some will, some will uh, keep on hearing, but they won't understand. They'll keep on seeing, but they won't perceive, etc., um, that sort of language comes in the context uh, where the prophets or Christ himself would oftentimes employ symbolic actions or, in Christ's case, parables, which, of course, fits then what we expect with the book of Revelation, which is highly symbolic and uses a lot of pictures and symbolism. So it makes sense that the messages to the churches here employ this language as well. Like, to those who have the ear, to those who are spiritually attuned to actually hear these things, go ahead and heed this. Some of you, though, um, this pattern of language indicates, some of you are not spiritually attuned to hear these things, and it will only serve to harden you. You will hear without hearing. You won't. Tr- you may hear it with your ears, but you won't truly listen and heed to what is said. Um, and, and when we go back to the prophets and the way the prophets use this language, the primary function uh, of the prophets um, towards the end of of Israel's history was to actually warn Israel of impending doom and divine judgment, which is exactly also what we see in the book of Revelation, these these warnings at times given to the churches, as well as the doom and the judgment of God that is coming on the nations that rebel um, against his Christ. In this case, though, whereas previously the this formula was used to address Israel, now it's used to address the church. And so here, the church, like Israel in some respects, 
as we see, has, has, be, has become compromised and spiritually lethargic and has entertained idolatrous allegiances. And so this, this sort of parabolic, symbolic method is now reinstituted for the church. One commentator puts it this way, and I think it's, it's helpful. Uh, he says, the parables throughout the book are meant also to shock believers caught up in the church's compromising complacence by revealing to them the horrific, beastly nature of the idolatrous institutions that are being tempted, that they are being tempted to identify with and trusted. They're meant to shock believers out of their complacency and the danger of compromising with idolatrous culture in which they live. And so, the reason I find this interesting that at the end of these messages, you get the language of he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, how that's reflective of Christ and how that's reflective of the prophets and specifically Isaiah 6, this this sort of dual function of either causing you to heed and keep the prophecy or actually further hardening you. The reason I find this interesting and, and worth talking about is because it shows that in the background of this language is this battle over worship. It's a battle over idolatry. That the context in which, the, in which the prophets originally made these statements was Israel's temptation and fall into idolatry, and that's obviously very much present in the book of of Revelation. Revelation is very much depicting a cosmic battle over who will we ultimately worship. Um, the beast is seen as a counter object of worship. He's not. It's not maybe the way we oftentimes think of the beast in kind of popular presentations of Revelation. We just think of him as someone who the beast has this, is this image of something that is destructive and harmful and, and persecuting and things like that, which is true. But the other aspect that's important not to miss is that the beast offers up himself as a counter object of worship. And the false prophet therefore promotes the worship of uh, this idolatrous worship. And the book then is a battleground for who our hearts will worship. Will we worship the things of this world, the systems of this world that claim for our loyalty and our allegiance, or will we worship God? And so we're reminded of that, sort of these, the final statement in these, in these messages of the churches is kind of loaded um, with that. It's kind of baked into the language to kind of set our minds to think along those lines. All right. I think that's all I have uh, for now. I do want to record a second episode where... I want to talk specifically just about the theme of conquering. So each of these messages closes with this call to conquer, and that's a really important theme throughout the entire book. So I want to dedicate an entire episode just to working through that. So be sure to check out that second episode I will be releasing uh, today. Um, But I will see you in that episode.